Hello and welcome. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Joshua Molina. And I'm Rishi K. Shearway. Today, we're talking about King Corn. It's episode 13 from season six. It was written by John Wells. It was directed by Alex Graves. It first aired on January the 26th, 2005. This episode takes place entirely in Iowa. We get to see one day from the perspective of three different campaigns. And joining us later will be two of the actors who portrayed two of the campaign workers, Karis Campbell and Evan Arnold, who played Rana and Ned from the Santos campaign, respectively, will be joining us to talk about their experiences on the West Wing and with this episode specifically. Huzzah! That'll be fun. Josh, I'm going to start off by saying this. I think this is my favorite John Wells episode. Favorite episode written by him? Favorite episode written by John Wells, yeah. Huh. Because usually the John Wells episodes are the season openers or finales, and they have more of a cliffhanger-y kind of flavor to them. Right. And as you know, I like the sort of slice of life episodes a little bit more, and this one is really like a slice of life on the campaign trail. And I thought the John Wells take on that kind of a story was really great. Me too. I love the way the three stories are told. It's another breath of fresh air episode. And it feels like the energy of the series is moving out on the campaign trail and moving away from the core crew we've become accustomed to over the past many seasons. The focus of the show is shifting. In some ways, this episode does feel like a pilot. I guess, you know, it does almost feel like it could be a season one episode one take on things. There are moves that are made here that are so different from the West Wing. In some ways, it feels like a blueprint for a new show, even though there are so many familiar moves within it. I love the structure of this episode, taking this one day, starting at 5.45 in the morning, going up with the wake-up call, and telling each story within its own kind of silo in the middle of the episode, and then wrapping them up, you know, at the beginning and the end all together. I thought that was really cool. It put me in mind of Russian Doll on Netflix. Yes, a great show. Yeah, I'm only a few episodes into it. Yeah. But I'm many deaths into it already. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, and Russian Doll and this episode both, I think, owe a debt to Groundhog Day. Indeed. Here, especially because the day starts with an actual wake-up call and you get the shot of the alarm clock and, and the time, it feels a lot like the beginning of every day in Groundhog Day. Yes, I did notice, though, that in the Josh Lyman wake-up, he gets his 5.45 a.m. wake-up call at what appears to be 5.46, according to his desktop clock. Mm -hmm. It's true. And, you know, the, the opening title that we get for each of them is that it's actually 5.46 in the morning. There you go. Oh, so it's the call that's off. The call is just coming a little bit late. You know, they've got to make, yeah. they've got to call all these different people at 5.45. Unless the title card is off. <laughs> right. All right, let's start at the beginning. We don't actually begin the episode on this Wednesday morning that the episode centers around. We actually start the night before with, again, a different kind of motif than we've seen on the show. There are just all these different shots of different hotel signs in Iowa as Patsy Cline plays. I go out walking after midnight out in the moonlight. Just sort of establishing where we are and the flavor of the place as Donna arrives at the Holiday Inn. Yes. I, I, I wrote down that I, I really, really liked the cold open. I wrote terrific cold open. Mm -hmm. It's tight. It's taut. It's fresh. It's new. <laughs> it's kind of wow. This is a different version of Walking After Midnight by Patsy Cline that I'm familiar with. It kind of set the tone for what we're talking about here, where it's like, it's something both very familiar, all the moves, all the notes in the song and the lyrics are the same, but it's presented in a way that I was not used to. And so in some ways, it kind of felt like a good template for this episode. Good point. 
one of the reasons why I love this episode is because it feels really economical. Like I, I think they do a lot with few moves and it starts right away. Donna walks into the hotel and she has a shorthand with the people at the front desk. Hey, anything for four twelve? <sighs> Mr. Bailey's still in the cafe. Five forty five wake up call? Yeah, or you could just have someone come to my room and hit me over the head with a mallet or something. In just a couple of lines, you know that she's been there for a, a long time. And not only Donna, but a bunch of people, they know, they say, oh, Mr. Bailey's st- still over here. I liked Mr. Bailey, I yeah. to be honest. <laughs> I enjoyed that. I felt respected for once. It's just smart writing, how much they convey in just a, those few lines. Yes, good storytelling. And then we go into the mobile version of the Russell campaign, and Mr. Bailey is pretty, again, brutally tactical. Yes, in his little booth that he's commandeered. Yeah. What do you think of this strategy? We've got uh, two recently released federal inmates, uh, an airline mechanic, two men over the age of 80, comedian, a nun. Fill the debate stage with fringe candidates so that Hoynes looks closer to the fringe candidates than he does to Russell, even though they both had served as vice president. Yeah, I like it. I think, you know, as we'll soon learn in that scene with Donna, that there's such a thing as too fringy. (laughs) Right. Scary fringy. Yeah. But the idea that if you put crackpots on stage, the gravity will actually pull Hoynes closer to their direction than towards Russell's direction is a shrewd one. I mean, if he's right, I don't know that he's right. I mean, like you said, like some of them are so fringe that I don't think that it'll actually work the way that he wants it to work. But it is, it's also a pretty harsh assessment of where Hoynes actually is. Indeed. Will also has, I think, very carefully created tired hair. <laughs> I looked at myself and I was like, I wonder how long hair worked on me to make me look just that sort of tired and work <laughs> and up late. I mean, that must have been nice, right? To go into hair and makeup and not have the usual... Oh, it's fantastic. Yes, the normal daily fight is to try to look my best, which is just an utterly depressing endeavor. I like when they're like, you know, eh, I don't have to worry about shaving or... Uh, maybe even showering, and uh, you don't have to do your hair. (laughs) Nowadays, going to hair is depressing for another reason, because they have to create the illusion that I'm not losing my hair. (laughs) But back then, they just had to tire it up. So Donna's come back from raising a bunch of money. They're raking it in on the Russell campaign. Don't be a tease. Half a million. Wow. Money is not an issue. The issue is the actual campaign events. They have to do this event in front of the Corn Growers Expo, the Iowa Corn Growers Expo. This really becomes the heart of the episode because all the candidates have to decide what they're going to say about ethanol. Ethanol being the touchstone of the Iowa caucus. And apparently this is, in fact, the case. You can't show up and not talk about ethanol. Yeah, there's sort of one thesis underlying this episode, which is that you can't win in Iowa without being a supporter of ethanol. And it's a matter of either you come out for it and uh, and pander and get further ahead, or if you're against it, you come out against it, as most of the candidates, everybody, Russell, Santos, and Vinick are all against it. And it's a matter of whether or not you say that and torpedo your chances or not. But history since this episode has aired has proven that that's actually not the case. Since Ted Cruz in 2016 went to Iowa, was against ethanol, which I guess makes sense as a Texan, Pulled a Vinick. And he won the Iowa caucus. That said, I think you and I both read the same article suggesting that the Democrats are still kowtowing to ethanol by and large in order to woo a rural vote that has been eluding the party. 
Yeah. There are a couple of articles that we'll link to so people can read about this more on their own. One is an article in Politico magazine that sort of details the 2020 Democrats' stance on ethanol and how all of them have basically fallen in line in support of ethanol, despite other policy positions that they have that might make you think that they would have come out against it. And I actually spoke to the author of that piece. Joining me now is Michael Grunwald, senior writer for Politico magazine. He's the author of the piece from March 2019, How the 2020 Democrats Learned to Love Ethanol. Michael, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. So in this episode, one of the central plot lines is that all the Democratic candidates are expected to support ethanol production, but it's actually kind of cynical because none of them actually believe in ethanol production. And I was surprised when I was researching for our discussion to find your article in Politico magazine, because it turns out that maybe things haven't really changed that much since this episode aired in 2005. Well, uh, the main thing that's changed is that there's a lot more evidence that ethanol is bad, um, but uh, certainly the ethanol pandering has not changed. There are, I guess, a lot of rural votes in Iowa. You know, I read a study from the Department of Energy that said ethanol production is getting better and getting more efficient. And, you know, at one point in the West Wing episode, they talk about how it takes a gallon of fuel to create a gallon of ethanol. Making a gallon of ethanol takes almost a gallon of oil. That's like saying using tonic water as an additive reduces our demand Look. for gin. So, you know, it's not a net energy creator, but in this energy department report, it says the ratio has actually gone up two to one and it's going to get better as technology continues to improve. Have you found that that's not the case? Well, no, that part is true. Certainly agriculture, corn growing, ethanol production, all of that has gotten more efficient. But back in 2005, there was a real misunderstanding of ethanol's impact on the environment, partly because people weren't as focused as they should have been on climate change, which is the uh, the main area where ethanol is so problematic. Back in those uh, the days of 2005, people figured that the actual act of growing ethanol was carbon neutral because, you know, you took the corn and you ran it through the ethanol plant and that created some emissions and then burning it in your car created emissions, but then you would grow more corn corn. And through photosynthesis, that would take the carbon out of the atmosphere. So between growing and burning, that seemed to sort of cancel each other out. But what people realized, uh, and it seems sort of obvious, but it took a, you know, a big article in Science Magazine to kind of point this out for the first time, is that you know it wasn't like uh, before we started using ethanol that that land had been you know pavement or a parking lot. It, it had in fact been growing corn. And when you use an acre of land to grow corn to grow ethanol, somewhere else you've got to grow an extra acre of corn to feed cows or feed human beings. And essentially, that acre of corn is likely to come out of grasslands or wetlands or, or forest land that used to store a lot of carbon. So essentially, the opportunity cost of growing this ethanol is taking a lot of carbon and sending it into the atmosphere. And that's why all biofuels really have a carbon problem, but ethanol seems to be the worst. I thought that there was such a surplus of corn growing in America that ethanol production rose out of that, that we had corn to spare. And so we didn't have to worry about taking an acre from somewhere else in order to grow the corn that ethanol was supplanting. 
Well, you do hear that a lot. But remember, we're t- this is a global market. There's a fixed amount of land in the world and there's a, you know, there's sort of a fixed amount of food demand. And when we use that great agricultural land in the middle of our country to grow corn, it can be used to feed somebody or it can be used as fuel to feed an SUV. Land turns out to be extremely efficient at storing carbon and growing food and not so efficient at growing fuel. What do the people who are on the ethanol industry side of things say to you when you're talking to them about this? Well, one thing they point out is that they've gotten a lot more efficient, as you mentioned, and they do say that it's not like the United States has a corn shortage. But remember, about 10 years ago, when the United States renewable fuel standard went into effect, and uh, really the U.S. had a huge boom of ethanol production, um, started devoting, it's now I think about 40% of its corn crop goes to fuel, you saw simultaneously a huge spike in food prices around the world. World and uh, tremendous geopolitical instability. You had sort of these tortilla riots in Mexico. You had places like Sudan and Pakistan that were not exactly particularly stable to begin with, were having tremendous problems with the rising price of food. I remember uh, it was about 10 years ago, I went to Brazil and talked about how the increased price of soybeans and grain was creating tremendous pressure on the Amazon. And And you talk to people in the field and what they said is the price of grain goes up, the forest comes down. (laughs) And that's essentially the problem with ethanol. It is pretty transparently an effort to boost agricultural prices, to boost grain prices, which is great for the farmers. And we're very good at finding ways to use public policy to help farmers. But it's not so good for consumers. And particularly when it comes to raising grain prices, that has a real effect on land use around the planet. So it's almost like the exchange that we should be looking at is not how much it takes in terms of fossil fuels to produce the ethanol at the ethanol plant, but actually in terms of the carbon exchange between what the ethanol gives off and what the plant life that might exist in that finite amount of land might be able to absorb back in. Exactly. We're sort of talking about uh, it's kind of complex, these sort of, uh, you know, life cycle analyses of carbon. But essentially, when you think about it, there's sort of a a fixed amount of land in the world. And with that land, we're going to need to feed 7 billion people and we're going to need to store an awful lot of carbon, the sort of carbon that we used to store naturally before we started burning fossil fuels. And now we're going to have to sort of uh, (laughs) store extra carbon to hopefully someday remove some of those uh, those fossil fuels that we've already spewed into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so really, the way to think about it, all biofuels is that every acre of land is really precious. And if it isn't sort of serving one of those functions, if it isn't storing a lot of carbon or it isn't producing a lot of food, it's having a negative impact on greenhouse gases. So given everything that you've learned, why do you think that the 2020 Democrats aren't coming out against ethanol? What's the reason for hanging in there? You know, it's funny. In in some ways, this seemed like the perfect year for Democrats to turn against 
the ethanol industry? Because first of all, you know, in 2016, Ted Cruz on the Republican side actually ran against ethanol and, and he won Iowa. Right. It was one of the only states he won. So it sort of showed that it could be done. And that theoretically is even a harder mountain to climb than what Democrats have to do, because maybe he's got to court rural support even more strongly and deeply than uh, Democrats, where their support might be coming more from urban parts of Iowa. Exactly. They've done so badly in rural America that they feel like that's just not sustainable, that if they want to win back the some of those Rust Belt states in the middle of the country, that they're going to have to do better with rural voters. And there's no question that in Iowa, where ethanol creates about 44,000 jobs, and it really is a pretty big industry in a lot of these small towns that have been so sour on Democrats, they feel like this is a way where they can say to rural voters, hey, you know, President Trump, uh, he He's been kind of a mixed bag on ethanol. He's supported the renewable fuel standard, but he's also provided all kinds of exemptions for oil refineries because he's even more in the tank uh, for fossil fuels than he is for corn. And at the same time, uh, President Trump's tariffs and his trade war have really uh, created huge problems for farmers, corn farmers in particular, Hmm. and for rural America in general. So a lot of Democrats are saying, hey, you know, we can't afford to give up this opportunity. So you're seeing even Democrats who have been really quite critical of ethanol in the past, like Kristen Gillibrand, Cory Booker, are now saying like, hey, this uh, ethanol may be not be the long term solution. Maybe it's just a bridge fuel, but we've got to stand with Iowa farmers. You have this quote in your article from Senator Booker saying it's not a question of if it's a question of when. So right now I support ethanol, I support our farmers, but no, this transition is coming. I mean, does this feel emblematic of the 2020 Democrats in general, kind of wanting to play both sides? It's a little like uh, St. Augustine, right? Like, Lord, give me chastity, but not quite yet. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I think what uh, Senator Booker said is exactly right, that you can see a transition coming to electric vehicles in the sort of the global marketplace, uh, you know, or the sort of the rush for alternative fuels. Electrification has done really well and biofuels have done really badly. But what he's saying is like right now, there aren't enough uh, electric vehicles to provide one for everybody. And he's saying, look, if we want to do something about climate change in the transportation sector, then for now, ethanol is the only option. The problem is that there really is just mounting science that ethanol, which really was touted as this kind of plan to save the world. And a lot of people like, you know, Al Gore were really excited about it in its infancy. It really turns out to be more of a sort of planet killer than a planet saver. Well, there are still several months before the actual caucus. Do you think that there's any chance that anybody from the crop of Democrats might change their tune? You know, I have to say yes. I would say there's a chance because it seems like when you've got 20 people running for president in one party, you would think that these candidates would be looking for ways to set themselves apart from the pack. And, you know, being the greenest of a green pack seems like a, you know, a pretty obvious way to do it, even if it turns out to be kind of better politics in New Hampshire than in Iowa. You want to stand out somewhere. Mm -hmm. That said, so far, you haven't seen anybody take a bold stand on ethanol among the Democrats, Uh, not even Jay Inslee, who's running as the climate change candidate. And I'd be lying if I say I really expected somebody to do it. Hmm. In the West Wing episode, you know, the Democrats that we see all take the pledge despite believing otherwise. And the one person who 
doesn't is the Republican candidate, the character that Alan Alda plays. Then it comes out against uh, ethanol because he's been against it as a senator from California. He's been against it publicly, and then he just sticks to his guns. And in the episode, it's sort of a foregone conclusion that he's basically committed political suicide in Iowa by doing that. But at the same time, it's a very, you know, admirable West Wing moment because it's somebody who <laughs> has decided to go against groupthink and move away from pandering and, and speak their mind despite the consequences. Well, on the Republican side, last time you saw Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush, who were had always been anti-ethanol, they flip-flopped. You saw Bernie Sanders, who had uh, always been anti-ethanol, he flip-flopped. And the, the one who stuck to his guns was Ted Cruz, and he won. Though I, I must say, as a caveat, that I heard from Democrats and Republicans in Iowa that a lot of them, they pointed out that it usually is a pretty right-wing candidate like Ted Cruz who wins the Republican caucus in Iowa. And some of them think he would have won by a lot more if he hadn't come out against ethanol. And that Donald Trump, who came out very strongly in favor of ethanol during the Iowa caucus, that that really did help him win Iowa in 2016 against Hmm. Hillary Clinton. Because remember, Barack Obama had won Iowa fairly easily, and he was a big biofuels guy and an ethanol guy. Yeah. And it was the biggest flip of any state in 2016. Hmm. That's, I think, part of the reason why it seems even more surprising that they would stick to supporting ethanol because it does seem to be not just in urban areas, but throughout the state, it seems like it's receded in its importance in favor of other kinds of issues, social issues, abortion, gun rights, things like that, that voters are actually more keenly tuned into. I pointed out in my story that in, even in Iowa, the wind industry is a much bigger industry that produces uh, far more energy than the ethanol industry, even though Iowa is the number one ethanol producer. And yet you still saw even Michael Bloomberg, who back Back in 2007, when he was trashing ethanol, had said that basically the only reason to support ethanol is if you're a presidential candidate, and uh, and I'm not interested in that. <laughs> you know, once he became a sort of momentary presidential candidate, and he never even ended up announcing, he flipped too. Right. Well, I guess we know it's bipartisan issue then. <laughs> yeah, uh, political courage is, uh, or the lack thereof, tends to be bipartisan as well. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me about this. Your article was great, and we're going to link to it on our website so people can check it out. Thank you so much. Yeah, anytime. One of the interesting things about this episode, and I guess about the current day situation, is there seems to be like a whole, I guess this, you find this a lot in politics, where there's, there's almost a wink-wink about it. You're pandering to people. They probably know you're pandering. Some people in your own party who would disagree with the position you're taking are probably inclined to let you off for it because they know you're pandering. It's a whole like multi-level approach that just isn't genuine, but it's just sort of how the game is played. There's a quote I read from John Wells when he was talking about this episode, saying that this is the central issue for campaigns. He said, what are you willing to sacrifice? What of your integrity? What do you have to do to be politically expedient? The political professionals are telling you it doesn't really matter what you say. You're just trying to get votes and make a difference when you get elected. That's a recurring theme. They want? Yeah, well, explain it to them after someone's actually elected us to something, okay? You have Will Bailey, Josh Lyman, and the new introduction of... Stephen Root and Patricia Richardson coming in for the Vinnick campaign, all kind of serving this role of telling their candidate, you just need to do this for your political future. And then you see how the different candidates react to that advice, even though they all get the same advice. Yeah, it's interesting. What we don't really seem to have 
is anyone on the strategy end with his or her head in the clouds. It's the candidates who rankle under the pressure of being pushed towards a position they would rather not take or that they in fact do not hold. And all the operatives are saying, for the love of God, just indulge me here and say what you need to say. Yeah. I wonder what the Russell haters might think of Russell in this episode and what he says, because he has his reasons for why he's against ethanol, and mm-hmm. he articulates them, in fact. He's just the person who happens to buy in to the arguments that the all these political advisors are making. He gets it, and he has his objections, but he also doesn't need to be like spoon-fed a kind of campaign strategy 101 in order to go out there and do the pandering that needs to be done. We're set on this ethanol speech. Don't worry, I'm not suicidal. I'm going to take the pledge. Yeah, that's right. In in a sense, I could almost, uh, although it wasn't a real focus of this episode, I could a little bit see because I was looking for what Will sees in Russell in terms of this one microcosmic issue. We've heard Will say before, Bob Russell might be the next president of the United States. You get in now, you can make him the candidate you want him to be. After that, we make him the president we need him to be. And that's sort of like, that's what this, uh, you know, that John Wells quote was about. Get him in the office and then start doing the good things that uh, you all know are right and good. And Will Bailey at least has someone who's going to play ball and who understands that approach, whether or not that's admirable. He's got what he needs and what he's looking for. Josh Lyman and Matt Santos seem to have never had a very basic conversation. I know I kind of said this before, but again, Josh seems to be misreading or forgetting what caught him up in the Santos orbit in the first place, or with the aura of Santos. He's not that guy. He just isn't that guy. And even though he even does it, you can see it, and it's a good performance. You can see it in Santos's face when he stands up there and reads from the teleprompter. He's pragging it basically gritting his teeth. This does not look like a a happy guy. This looks like someone who's taken his medicine. Yeah. And uh, Josh Lyman should have made that read by now. And, you know, on top of it, the candidate's wife is also making clear that that's not what she's about. It's not what Santos is about. What are they doing? What do they get into this for? You know, it's like Josh has got to take a deep breath and figure out whether he can work with this guy. In some ways, I admire Russell because he doesn't, you don't have to like waste all that time. They sort of have these philosophical arguments about why is the Iowa caucus even important, you know, and it's like, well, this is the board and how you're going to play it. I guess it feels like it should be played at a more sophisticated level than what we're dealing with here. Although, I, like I said, I like this episode a lot, just in terms of the actual mechanics of like making a campaign. And here you are at the Iowa caucus and you're deciding, you know. Yeah, no, I split. I eventually just let go of it and yeah. decided to enjoy the episode rather than continuing to write down essentially what you're saying. Like, they aren't, they're not past this point. And, uh, you know, so I just decided, you know, in its own terms, there's something interesting going on here between Santos and Josh. There's, they've already even had that moment where Josh is like, wait a minute, are you not even in this to win it? Right, are you right. just out here to do something? And they really should be past that point now and <laughs> come down to one strategy. Are we going to do the politically expedient things that we need to do in order to try to put mount a serious campaign for the presidency? Or are you just trying to make a statement? In which case, you know, I think Josh would have been on board with coming out to Iowa and, uh, you know, speaking out against ethanol. Yeah. Let me also add another layer of ambiguity to this storyline, because there is this kind of aspect to it that's taken for granted that, like, ethanol equals bad. Right. 
but there is a little bit more nuance to it than that. And, you know, this episode, not surprisingly, pissed off the actual ethanol industry who, who pointed out that the episode got a lot of things wrong. It hasn't improved that much in the very recent past, but from the 90s, when this energy sink that Russell describes actually was the case, till 2005, there were actually a lot of improvements. So by the time the episode aired, even then it was no longer the case, what they're talking about. And now the energy efficiency is higher still. It's better yet, yeah. I think there are plenty of reasons to still criticize ethanol or at least be wary of it. I feel like they're using it as this stand-in for... Uh, we're all meant to understand that ethanol is bad. Right. And doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I think uh, really the issue itself is just sort of a convenient reality that this is something you have to talk about in Iowa. But really it could have just been a black box to get to the thing that John Wells was talking about, which is this idea of like, what do you say that's actually in your heart versus what do you say in terms of what you need to get elected? Yes. But, you know, when you're a TV show that millions of people watch and you treat a real issue that has... There's real, a responsibility there. Yeah. And people weren't happy. And uh, that's not the only thing that people were upset about. What else? There's a smaller thread in this episode, not even a thread, really just a mention of a woman in Turkey who is going to get the death sentence for adultery. Mm -hmm. And um, turns out Turkey was not so thrilled about that. Turkey, where the death penalty was abolished, they had not executed anybody since 1984. I mean, say what you will about Prime Minister Erdogan. He abolished the death penalty fully in 2004. This episode got a lot of criticism from Turkish politicians, and it ended up leading to John Wells and the president of NBC, Jeff Zucker, sending an apology to the Turkish ambassador. As they should have. I mean, that, that's a big miss. Yeah. The letter said, in the future, we will not only visit Turkey, a country that we admire, but also present a better and correct portrayal of your country. Or, as we have in the past, we'll make up a country <laughs> and say it happened there. This is the reason that you have Kamar. Right. Dump it on Kamar. Got no ambassadors to apologize for when you make up a country. Yeah, that was a big uh, miss on their part. I also, um, I had a trouble with the, that story for another reason. Hmm. My usual reason, which is uh, language and language precision. The conviction of the young woman comes at a precarious time for Turkey, who has until recently enacted reform. Turkey who recently? Is that the right pronoun for a country? Hmm. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to think. Turkey who has recently enacted reforms? I think you would. I think you might. I think a specific Turkey, maybe. <laughs> Turkey, who was recently eaten at the Thanksgiving table. I think you might. Like if you were talking about, say, a debate in the UN and you're referring to the positions that the countries are taking on a specific issue, you might refer to them as who? Well, in the UN, I could see you're kind of putting a person and an right. ambassador on the, on the, as the representative ship of state. Yeah. And giving them a voice as if they are an individual. But just a country? America, who usually supports... Yeah, like in a war, I could see the use of who there. Now, maybe I'm just wrong. Weigh in, people. America, who fought against Germany in World War II, you would say America, which fought against Germany? I would say which country fought against Germany, <laughs> but that's how I speak. Uh, no. Yeah, no, I guess when you're talking about war, who fought whom? Well, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm just wrong. It sounded very odd to me in this context. Yeah. You know what the Turkey death penalty thing reminded me of was um, Aladdin. I remember being 
a teenager or close to it, whenever it was that Aladdin came out. And there was a song at the beginning of it that I remember listening to and being like, wow, that's super racist. It starts off with this song where he says, I come from a land from a faraway place. Where the caravan camels roam. Where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. Wow. Wowza. Yeah. No, that I don't recall that lyric. <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, that was incredibly racist. I was like, that's, uh, I guess, really thinking about the sort of the social responsibility of an enormous Disney movie in terms of its portrayal of other geographical regions. They should have set that in Kumar. Even if it is, you know, it's not modern day. Yeah, of course. Anywhere, but still. Yeah, no, that's rough. Yeah, there's a xenophobia in there that, uh, that's a bummer. And uh, it's crazy that a show as sophisticated as the West Wing would fall into this too. Mm. I called up Lauren Hessrick on the West Wing Bat phone, and I talked to her a little bit about King Corn, and she had two great stories to tell us. Joining me now is Lauren Hessrick to tell us about the town of Santa Paula's crazy campaign to get Arnold Vinnick to be from their hometown. This is a thing that actually happened after this episode came out. How did it happen? Break it down for us. So the very first thing that I remember happening was getting a box of oranges delivered to my office. There was a postcard, but it was attached to a box of citrus. <laughs> and it was from the mayor of Santa Paula at the time, Marianne Krause. And she was very open. She had started a campaign on behalf of Santa Paula to have Arnold Vinick, a fictional character, be from their very real town. And that's where it all began, actually. And it's just because... At one point, Vinick says, I grew up in a, in a citrus farming community in California. Correct. It's just that one line. It's one single line. So what did you do? You get, you get this box of oranges and then what, what happened? Well, obviously I ate some of the oranges and uh, shared them with the writers and they were great. You know, Santa Paula is known as the, uh, I believe the citrus capital of the world is the, the self-title. So, you know, when you get requests like that, you sort of think, well, that's nice. And then you just keep writing the story. And, and those requests never drive story. So we eventually get to an episode in the future uh, where we do return. And all of a sudden, we needed to make a decision where he was from. And that decision was very easy at that point. And, you know, I still did a lot of the researching on the show at the time as well. So I looked into Santa Paula and I made sure that it is a place where Vinick could be from, not just the citrus part of things, but a, a town that could build the political character that we had built. Huh. Obviously, a sort of small town would help us in a way. You know, he, he talks about when he moved there with his family when he was a child, after I think he was born in, in New York, but that his family wanted to move away from the big city and into a small town. So obviously, Santa Paul is a small town. That suited us well. You know, but also sort of would build the moderate Republican that Vinick was, you know, the sort of economy of the town, the political makeup of the town. And it all started to fit for us in a really nice way. It feels a little bit greedy of Santa Paula to want this, given that they're already calling themselves the citrus capital of the world. Like how many, <laughs> how many superlatives do you need? I have to say, though, it is one of those hilarious stories that you just think like, well, this can't be real. It seems too weird to be true. And in fact, it's true. That's amazing. <laughs> That's a great tidbit that you got tangled up in because of this episode. But I also want to ask you about another crazy outcome from this episode, which you told us about when you first came on the podcast. You mentioned briefly, but we, you know, we were so far from this episode, we didn't get into it, which is that you ended up in court with the government of Turkey. 
Is that King Corn? I had forgotten which episode that was. <laughs> yeah, that's also this episode. Wow, that's a, that's a lot for one episode. I, thank God, never went to court, but I was named in the lawsuit. Oh, that's what it was. Yep. Uh, which was against NBC, Warner Brothers, uh, John Wells, and me, a no one, who had just found a single article about a woman who I believe was stoned to death in Turkey for cheating, I want to say. And Turkey did not like how this sort of storyline reflected on their country, which I understand. Yeah, that's crazy. Because what I had read was that at least state-sanctioned executions had been abolished at that point. Mm -hmm. But this is not a government execution that you were talking about. That's exactly it, is that uh, nowhere in the episode were we saying that the government of Turkey was allowed to stone someone to death. Executions happen all the time all over the world by people who aren't the federal governments of those countries. Mm. And yes, that's exactly what we were saying. But the good news is, is that when I was researching, I mean, I obviously kept really good records and the case went away pretty quickly because we had evidence that this had in fact happened and that we were just reporting it as fact. So it did go away quickly. But that is definitely the weirdest lawsuit that I was ever part of. That's crazy. So, but you had to parse the idea of the news person in the episode says this person has been sentenced to death for her crime. And somehow you had to spin that so that the Turkish government could feel like they weren't actually being, that somehow that wasn't a government decision. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it is, again, sentenced to death. You use that term loosely anyway. Again, sentenced to death doesn't have to mean in a court of law. You know, someone can be facing their own death sentence by any group of people. Crazy. Lauren, thanks so much. <laughs> of course. Of course. I'm so happy to be doing this. Again, this is always fun. Okay, so before we get into the actual three chapters of Wednesday. At the beginning of this episode, we get Josh encountering Donna in the elevator. Delightfully awkward. I'm sorry, I couldn't find the button. Yeah, it's chilly in that elevator. Indeed. I mean, they really can't, they can't find anything to say. It's amazing that the relationship has devolved to this point. I love that scene because it's so well acted and we have invested six years of understanding into it. Mm -hmm. All the things that have happened to those characters before that moment, that, that scene wordlessly evokes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we know uh, under different circumstances, this could have been a romantic thing. I mean, here they are out on the campaign trail. They're out of town. They're at a hotel. Oh, we're right across from each other. I mean, you know, those people who are shipping Josh and Donna were wishing they would just choose one room or the other. I know. It almost happens. Almost. You know, not only they're on in the same hotel, they're on the same floor, they're on the same elevator, and then their rooms are across the hall. And then, you know, there's this cute moment where Josh still doesn't know how to open his own hotel room and Donna has to show him how to use the the key. Josh makes these stupid jokes and Donna's not amused. You know, the first time I watched this, I was like, is this it? Is it finally going to happen? And he goes up to her door, but alas, he does not hashtag finish strong. Indeed not. And then he goes back and I thought this was a great little piece of business, a nice piece of uh, behavior. And he tries to open his door the same way <laughs> yeah. he's used to. He's learned nothing. It's a good payoff. Yeah. So that ends our night for our heroes. And then, uh, and then the next morning begins with Donna's POV. Donna goes off and she's driving around. We get to see Trevor, who dropped her off at the beginning of the episode. And it's uh, Aaron Ashmore, who people might recognize from any number of things. I first saw him in Veronica Mars, uh -huh. where he played the ridiculously named Troy Vandergraaf. He was in In Plain Sight with Mary McCormick. Ah, uh, who wasn't? And I think a lot of people probably know him as playing Jimmy Olsen in Smallville. And apparently he's on a show now called Killjoys that I will refer to as Killjoy. <laughs> Donna's day is sort of what begins this first chapter, but we aren't 
tied to Donna's POV. It's really more Donna as a stand-in for the Russell campaign. We're just sort of following that campaign storyline. She just is our, our entryway. Later, we get the scenes on the bus that we talked about between Russell and Will. And one of the things that Russell makes reference to, which is not explained until later within the Santos storyline, is the black and brown. Will says the black and brown's coming up, which is uh, the black and brown forum in Iowa. It's, I'm reading from Wikipedia, the nation's only presidential forum in which all candidates have the opportunity to answer essential concerns of African Americans and Latinos. And it is recognized as the oldest continuous minority forum for presidential candidates in America. So it's a little bit whiny of Russell to say, do I really have to go to that? It's not a fair fight. He says, Atkins and Santos get to stand up there holier than thou, rail against racial injustice, while the rest of us loiter around looking like those two albino twins from the Matrix. Any kind of good sense about his comments of ethanol that had come before kind of get washed away with that. Well, Russell's generally a wash. <laughs> for every <laughs> yeah. for everything you say, he's, ah, he's kind of slick or kind of uh, on top of something. There's always something dumb he did or said <laughs> right. that balances it out. And then the day and this sort of chapter ends with Russell going to the expo. Yes. And doing what he is expected to. Now, I'm not saying this just because I'm in Iowa. I say this everywhere I go. We need more ethanol production. It's not already. It's not a struggle for Russell. No. And everybody agrees. You know, Donna comes back from her tour of the fringe candidates and says, it'll be a circus without the jugglers. Russell delivers his line and Will says, It's not already a circus. You're telling me this guy's not Jewish? I don't buy it. It's not already a circus. <laughs> it's canon. He's goy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Chapter two, we get to watch Brad Whitford wake up <laughs> at either 545 or 546. Mm-hmm. And we see uh, Josh Lyman's day and his day of completely misunderstanding his candidate, having had a speech drafted for him, which conflicts with the candidate's own views. This is where I started to have that feeling again of, come on, yeah. talk to the guy. Yeah. Have a five minute head to head before you jump into Iowa. This is an interesting contrast from our last episode on the road with these two, because they had the same conflict about the education plan. Right. Santos did not listen to Josh at that time. Josh was saying, hey, you can't talk about this stuff. In the end, he did anyway. It moved the debate forward and got him some attention. And it ended up being an effective strategy, even though it was against, went against what Josh had advised. Here, somehow, the impact of that, I don't know, maybe Santos was exhausted from having fought that fight, even though he won. And here he capitulates. Yeah, but I like in a way what John Wells has done because I really I didn't remember what happened, and I kind of thought it was going to be a retread. It's sort of the same beats in the same story, mm. where he's going to stand up, disregard the teleprompter, and say what's on his mind. And so I was kind of actually pleased that they went a different way with it. And we see that the guy is human, and that yeah. he is subject to the pressures of a campaign. And maybe he felt bad because he didn't have very many beans in his jar. Right. And... uh He's starting to look a little bit more, though not like an invigorated one, but he's looking more like a candidate. He's right. looking like a guy who's willing to play the game and who's, uh, however begrudgingly, doing the things he needs to do to position himself uh, with some success, at least here in Iowa. I like the idea that someone who starts off being on the margins gets to have these approaches that you can only do sort of with the luxury of not taking your own candidacy very seriously. You know, mm -hmm. you can do these sort of more daring moves going against the conventional wisdom. 
But then as those unconventional moves give you success and move you more into the mainstream in terms of your renown, you then back off of the things that actually got you there because you do have to uh, abide by conventional wisdom if you want to actually stay in those places. I mean, it, it's kind of feels like the story of let Bartlett be Bartlett and, and uh, you know, a lot of things about the Bartlett administration here getting to see it on the campaign trail is a neat new microcosm for it. Right. These little storylines always remind me of the greater storyline of the movie Bullworth, in which I play a small role, in which you have Warren Beatty as Senator Jay Bullworth, who has, in fact, hired somebody to kill him for insurance reasons. And he realizes for the first time in his now uh, soon-to-end life that he has the ability to say whatever he feels and believes and say it in any form he likes, and it's freeing for him. The same way that a candidate who believes that he's not going to win or a president who has no more races to run theoretically is free to do and say as he or she pleases. Yeah. But being leashed by your own success from having been off the leash is a really neat dynamic. There's a strange moment in this episode where Josh and Santos are having their own version of the ethanol debate when uh, Josh says, What is this, the insult and injury tour? We going to North Dakota next? Tell them South Dakota has a cooler sounding name. Farm stuff. It was a strange example since in season three, we already had that storyline. Kind of. Oh, that's true. You remember, Donna has to go to North Dakota. Literally about the Dakotas. And about their names. Miss Moss, are you aware that studies clearly show the word North leaves the impression that this state is cold, snowy, and flat, significantly depressing tourism and business startup? Due respect, sir, your average temperature is 7 degrees, your average snowfall 42 inches, and a name change isn't going to take care of that. We enjoy roughly the same climate as South Dakota. We took in 73.7 million in tourism revenue last year. They took in 1.2 billion. They have the word South. Also Mount Rushmore. (laughs) Yeah, that was a great scene in that episode. That was good. They didn't quite top it here. It's like a little... It's a weird callback. A little tip of the hat. That's what I was wondering. Like, it doesn't feel like it can be coincidental. And yet at the same time, it also feels like it doesn't remember this previous scene. It's an interesting question. (laughs) Yeah. Here's a part that I loved. After this, Josh and Santos are then arguing about the black and brown forum and what Santos can say or can't say. While they're having that argument, I think this is, again, just a great economy of storytelling. While they're having that argument, you might not even be paying attention while it's happening. They're walking out to a runway and they go to this small plane. And as they're talking, Santos walks around the plane. Mm, I love that. And you see him sort of like touch little parts of it. And it's easy to sort of miss the fact that he's actually inspecting the plane because there's no, we aren't given a reason why he would do that. It just is in some ways, it just feels like the walk and talk happens to be taking place around this plane. And then it pays off afterwards when Josh finally gets on the plane after worrying about the size of it. And you see that Santos is actually in the cockpit and he's going to be the one flying. Where's the congressman? Up front. Up front? I can't exactly fly it from back here. You might want to buckle up, Josh. Don't think I'll ever get tired of doing barrel rolls. Yeah, that was great. I noticed it too. Like it was really taken as like, is he a nervous flyer? Yeah. And I was trying to remember where did he serve, but he was a Marine, not in the Air Force. So that was a good little reveal. Yeah. By the way, there's stuff that gets talked about in this episode, issues that are mentioned in this episode an immigration bill that was, you know, co-sponsored by Vinick and Santos. So in just the briefest way possible, like the word, they mentioned the word immigration, they talk about free trade at one point, and they talk about NAFTA. 
and they talk about ethanol. And one thing I kind of wish, I don't know if it's possible in an episode of TV, but I wish there had been a moment where there was some policy person, somebody who could come in and explain how all of these issues are actually all intertwined. Like NAFTA and free trade and immigration, all these things, they share, if not one fulcrum, they're all sort of interconnected. And I would appreciate it just for the educational value for myself. But the idea of how subsidized corn exports from the U.S. to Mexico depress corn growing right. efforts in Mexico, sending waves of unemployed farm workers north of the border to the U.S. to try and find work. There, there's something really fascinating. Yeah, there's root level connection. Yeah. And I wish there was uh, just a little something to sew those all together. Well, don't we know anyone smart? <laughs> I mean, that's where I'm like, where was Lawrence O'Donnell on that? Mm-hmm. Which candidate says at one point during this episode, Do we really want workers in Malaysia to be earning our minimum wage? I mean, do you have any idea what real estate costs in Kuala Lumpur? I thought that was an interesting, that really caught my attention. Yeah, Finnick is an interesting case. It feels a little bit like, in some ways, he is as much a liberal fantasy as President Bartlett is. Mm -hmm. I know what you're saying. I don't know if I'm completely able to articulate it, there's something about, it's like, this is who a liberal would dream up. For a principled conservative opponent. Yeah. Not just as, as a principled opponent, but one who is uh, getting a lot of success in the Republican Party as well. Like, not just somebody who is like, oh, here's a principled opponent who is doomed to a... Right, uh, no, this is a guy that can get some traction yeah. in, in, the, in the mainstream of the party. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. And I, I also, I, it feels to me what I think we know to be the case, which is that though maybe it was undecided at this point, I think the powers that be on the show are revving up towards potential reinvigoration of the series and a continuation of it with a new president. So I guess, that, you know, I can feel the approach by John Wells and company of, of trying to give us two viable candidates, either of whom could take the series forward for another four or eight years. And we know that Alan Alda was a candidate for President Bartlett's job before right. Martin Sheen got it. And here he does come across as the most West Wingy character of the right. three of them. Well, he's the guy who's got it going on. He's the guy that is not going to talk out of both sides of his mouth. He's going to mm -hmm. lay it out the way he sees it and still come out okay politically. He's not going to, you know, self-immolate. He, he seems to be the person who can walk the line and kind of be the genuine real deal guy who's telling you what he believes and either do well with it or, or suffer a little fallout for it. Yeah. There's stuff I like, I really like about where we are right now in the series, because they are really giving you the sense of an election, I think. You have these three storylines and these three characters. One is the established, right? We have Will and Donna and Russell. We know all of them. And we've known their stories for a while. And then we have this sort of upstart Santos. This character came out of nowhere. And in this world of the show, the candidate comes out of nowhere. We're going to get to know Ned and Ron a little better in this episode when we talk to Evan and Karis. But to audiences at home, they might not be as familiar with them as actors. You've got Josh trying to do what he can to push his way up the hill. And then you've got Vinick. And the way that they're presenting Vinick as a threat to the Democratic counterparts is so real. One, by casting a huge heavyweight like Alan Alda. Right, I agree. But then also by casting his staff with Stephen Root. Whom I love. An actor can do anything. And we've loved with Gary Cole in Office Space. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's a little mini reunion that happens off screen. That's right. I forgot about that. Of course. And Patricia Richardson, who uh, millions of people know from Home Improvement. And so it feels like they're setting him up, like even when the casting to have this kind of formidable quality. And I think when we finally get that meeting, although it's a casual encounter between Santos and Vinick in a restaurant, I think, mm-hmm. and they sit down, they have a little chat, it feels like two titans coming together. I mean, I do think the one thing I will say is there's a little bit of a telegraph coming from the show in that Russell and Hoynes are straw men. Hoynes we never even see. He's just mentioned. And Russell is Russell. <laughs> <It's>, you know, <laughs> it was never going to be Russell. So we're, we're sort of, you know, the gloves are off and we're kind of seeing... That's true. It's going to be these two guys. Yes. And I like that they sort of have a little meet cute and a smiley, friendly, sort of humorous conversation at the restaurant. They both seem formidable and uh, kind of worthy opponents. Yeah. So going into the third chapter, the introduction of Vinick. Well, first of all, we should mention that this is the first episode in which Alan Alda appears in the opening credits. Mm, Didn't notice. I've lost even more time. (laughs) That's right, you have. Now there's a single, there's just a single still of me. There's not even room to flash your entire name across. It just says Joshua Ma. (laughs) That's right. Well, bad agents. uh, (laughs) Well, you said if it means I can get even one more dollar, they can take my name out entirely. That's true. I just don't remember getting an extra dollar. Uh So Alan Alda joins the series as a regular here in the opening credits. He also would eventually be nominated for an Emmy for this season and in part because of this episode. Hmm. But again, one of the things that I love about the economy of this is when he gets his wake up call, he sits up and you see he he looks at a couple of photographs in frames and we don't even see what the contents of the photo frames are. But I think you can tell just from his expression, he's such a good actor. He's looking at family. He's looking at, his, I mean, to me, I'm like, oh, that's a picture of his wife. Mm-hmm. And there's a combination of somehow he manages to get across both happiness and grief in his expression. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And later he'll sort of give voice to it in uh, the sacrifices you make. Right. And he talks about missing many uh, birthdays of his kids. We get a, uh, he's, uh, I don't know what the word is for, uh, instead of avuncular, he's grandpuncular. <laughs> I'm I'm with it. (laughs) He's got his granddaughter on the phone. He sings to her. It's a very sweet moment as he's walking, I think, to give his speech. I also thought it was really cute that he makes a reference to Montavani to his granddaughter. Happy birthday to you. (laughs) (laughs) Montavani, I'm nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Can't possibly have landed with his granddaughter, whatever age she is. Yes. (laughs) But it's a sweet moment, and uh, we see what he's given up. You know, by the end of the episode, we actually do get to see what's in the uh, picture frame. We see Vinick and his wife, or a woman who we might assume to be his wife who is no longer alive. But I kind of wish almost that they hadn't shown it. Because you had already gotten it. Yeah, it ties the whole thing off, but I didn't need it. I got everything I needed in that first version. And, uh, you know, I love that. And I was, I was impressed by the restraint and really impressed by the performance. A little bit of writing that I like, too, in the booth when Santos professes his admiration for uh, Vinick not taking the ethanol pledge. Well, with my ethanol tantrum, I, uh, I suspect my work here is done. I think I've managed to successfully drag my, my, my poll numbers below a pro hockey score. Well, at least you still got a full set of teeth. 
you know, they're both in the hockey metaphor there, but I like that Santos is also like his, his full set of teeth is also talking about like sort of, he hasn't had to make this sort of toothless move mm-hmm. of saying he's for something that he's against. I like that. And, and Vinick, you know, ruefully is like, my staff is very proud. And Santos, you know, again, I, I love the performance. Well, if they weren't, I was. The humility there and the, the sort of honesty of that confession to say to like your political opponent, like, I admired your principles and you did a thing that, that I couldn't do. I just, I, I thought it was uh, really wonderful how much he downplayed that line. I agree. All right. It's time to talk about it. <laughs> I've been waiting for it. I think it's, uh, I think we've built up to this fever pitch moment. Mm-hmm. The montage, mm-hmm. uh, Ryan Adams acoustic song. Desire. Desire. A song choice that almost certainly wouldn't be made if the episode were made today. Mm, good point. Maybe they'd have a Brian Adams acoustic song called Desire. (laughs) Very good point. Yes, a song that is explicitly about Desire, and we get a long, loving, sultry look from Will Bailey as an ice cream novelty machine hoovers up the love of his life, a (laughs) Nestle's ice cream sandwich. I thought it's so sweet how when we see Will Bailey wake up in the morning, he has a picture frame next to his bed with an ice cream sandwich in it. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been, yeah. It's a nice moment. I've been asked about this moment many, many times. I think really by now I should have put it to Alex Graves, and I will ask him. I remember, I believe I remember, that when we were shooting it, I found the whole thing odd. I didn't realize how odd indeed it would be until (laughs) it it was part of a montage set to a song about deep desire. And there was the close-up. I'm sure I wasn't around when they decided to do an extreme (laughs) close-up. Of the ice cream sandwich. I mean, on a certain level, as sad a commentary as it is on Will Bailey's life, in a very deep way, I relate to it. (laughs) I like me some ice cream. Yeah. But this is a level of food porn that goes beyond Instagram photos. Indeed. Indeed. There's something uh, sexual about the machine itself. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in the eye of the boulder. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) By the way, I'd like to give a little callback shout out to a past episode of our own way back, way back in 2016. Whoa. We were talking about season one, episode 16, 20 hours in LA. Sure. I was talking about Donna and Josh, as we often Mm. do, and the dynamic between the two of them in the hotel room and how really we're getting a very clear sense of how much Donna is into Josh and how sort of cute and flirty she's being on the bed. Right. And you said... I will somewhere down the line have a, an episode where I'm in a hotel room, but I'm in love with an ice cream novelty. <laughs> <laughs> That's like wish fulfillment for me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that episode? And there's a musical montage during which I stare lovingly at an ice cream in a vending machine. <laughs> That's my romantic storyline. <laughs> but that's years from now and we'll approach it again. I haven't seen that one. Oh, you actually haven't. You literally don't get the reference because no, you haven't seen it. Haven't okay, seen. King Corn, meet you here, same place, same time, two years from now. <laughs> it took us an extra year. Well, I hope it didn't disappoint. Uh, no, it lived up to it. So I've been waiting for this. It was a little mini spoiler for me. I knew at some point there was going to be some scene between you and an ice cream sandwich. Indeed. I just gave about two minutes worth of what the ship name would be for these two lovers. But it's, Sandwill was all I came up with. <laughs> I'm sure somebody out there can top it. I like it. 
This is like this is like I can actually see the conversation <laughs> where they're saying it was, was did Brad now I'm having weird deja vu. Did Brad say this? Just when they finally, you know, the writer is in a desperate attempt to come up with some sort of romantic pairing for me. <laughs> Could only come up with an ice cream sandwich. <laughs> like, who else would Josh Molina have chemistry with? <laughs> I know. I'm going to have carnal knowledge of a carnation ice cream sandwich. Oh, there we go. I am having a love affair with this ice cream sandwich. You want some? You want to take a bite? Here's the real question. How many ice cream sandwiches did you get to eat? Uh, none. If memory serves, Zero. Well, yeah. on that note, rip off. But actually, in all seriousness, I am really drawn in by these campaign episodes so far, Opposition Research and King Corn. I love them. They're making stylistic choices in terms of like the lighting and the way things are shot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kudos to Alex Graves and crew. Yeah, but it ends up making me feel like I'm watching a spinoff of a TV show. Right, shared DNA, but a different creature. Yeah. And this might be heretical, but I think I might like the spinoff better at this point. Mm. Yeah, I think the series is progressing in a way it needed to. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know there's just a season and a half left, but it's feeling refreshed and like it could have gone uh, a little bit further yeah. than it ultimately will go. Yeah. I also wrote Icky Flentel, because just, just as we go to black and the uh, credits begin, we hear Brad kind of moan in bed. Mm. <laughs> it's gross again ickiness is in the ear of the hearer that's right i'm sure there were many fans who loved it and played mm -hmm. it over and over and it's probably somebody's ringtone <laughs> let's take a quick break and when we come back we're going to be joined by karis campbell and evan arnold and now back to the show Joining us now, two friends of mine to whom I haven't spoken in a long time, Karis Campbell, who played Rana on the show, and Evan Arnold, who played Ned. Welcome, guys. Thanks, both of you, for taking time to talk to us and coordinating your schedule so we could talk to both of you together. Absolutely. I think one of the reasons why I'm so happy to have both of you on at once is because I think of Rana and Ned as a team. You know, this is Team Santos. This is the team that's established when Josh shows up at their door. And I wanted to know if that feeling carried over to you two as well. Within the, the world of the West Wing, did it feel like you two were coming in together as a team? And do you live together now? We uh do. Yeah, <laughs> we do. We do. We're co-parenting. Um, I remember, you know, meeting Karis doing our first episode together. And please correct me if I'm wrong, Karis. But I remember we actually had to re-audition for our we own did. roles. Yeah. Uh, I remember waiting there in the waiting room next to Karis. Just thinking, what if I don't get my own part? And she gets hers. I'm going to be so embarrassed. I really liked working with Karis. I'd like to be on the team with with, with her. <laughs> what does that mean, re-audition for your part? After shooting? Yeah, we did. So we were introduced in the liftoff episode as congressional aides. And so we came in and did these small roles. And um, so we did that episode together, like Evan said. And then they started considering expanding the storyline. And they wanted to bring, they thought it was very reflective of Matt Santos's personality to bring his crew with him and his kind of reflective of his loyalty. And so, yeah, we had to go back in and they were going to, you know, determine whether or not we had the chops to really carry these <laughs> characters through. And so, yeah, we sat next to each other thinking, 
gosh, I hope I'm right for this. That's, <laughs> I've been through a lot of indignities in this business, but that's pretty horrible, having, <laughs> making you audition for the roles you already booked. <laughs> exactly, that we had originated. But in all, you know, in all fairness to them, we ended up having very little screen time in Liftoff. Maybe they just didn't realize, you know, if we could act beyond walking around a room. <laughs> Did the two of you know each other before you started working together on the show? We didn't. No, that was an introduction. Yeah, it was fun. I remember talking to you by the star wagons outside the soundstage as we were just trying to get to know each other. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, my story was like, uh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from here. You are? Yeah, I grew up in L.A. What about you? Um, my family's globetrotting. And, you know, your story is very, very interesting, Karis. Uh. Your whole upbringing. <laughs> your parents were Harlem globetrotters? Um, yeah, well, <laughs> they were Harlem Globetrotters, which is so strange. I know it doesn't look like I'm the product of Harlem Globetrotters. And since Evan comes from a Washington Generals family, you were immediately <laughs> pitted against each other. I was always the exactly. foil, yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, no, I just, I grew up abroad. And how did you work your way towards acting? I sort of found acting when I was in high school and just really loved it. I found my home. And um, from that point on, you know, continue to explore all sorts of different aspects. And I was classically trained. So I did quite a bit of theater before I ventured out to Los Angeles, reluctantly. The West Wing likes its theater actors, too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I have a very fond memory of just loving the moment and being jealous at the same time. I was in the makeup trailer. Uh, with John Spencer and Kristen Chenoweth when we were outside Royce Hall at UCLA one day. And they were just trading Broadway stories back oh. and forth. And I was a fly on the wall, and I was listening <laughs> to their opinions, critical, supportive, loving, heart-specific, <laughs> and it was so much fun. And I can see how they do love their theater actors. And you need it. You need training and competence for these uh, very fast walk and talks. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah, this is true. Do you have any memories of this specific episode now in King Corn? Where did we shoot? I can't even remember. Where were you... Uh... Where were we? It was a mixed bag. We started off in Pasadena and then ended up going to Toronto. And so a lot of that was shot right outside of Toronto. And that's all the, you know, the authentic cold air scenes, rosy noses, cold <laughs> red hands. Yeah. So we transitioned. So you can see everything that was happening in the, the sort of defunct sports store, the beginnings, the humble beginnings of the campaign. That was all in Pasadena. I remember every location from City of Orange <laughs> to when we were in the Winnebago, we were going up and down like Zoo Drive by Griffith Park. We did That's Pasadena, right. we did Burbank, we did Toronto. There was so much block shooting going on. They were cross-boarding three and a half episodes yep. at the same time. And then mm. bits in Toronto, that wonderful junket up there with L.A. It was it was wild from a scheduling yeah. perspective. Can you explain for people who don't understand block shooting and cross-boarding and all that? Uh, I think you'd do a lot better explaining that. But <laughs> what, what I know from yeah. my hack-lay perspective is you're shooting bits and pieces of multiple episodes at the same time. They'll try to say, okay, which actors can we use this one day? Or if it's more location-dependent, we're going to do scenes here, and then we'll filter it in. Can someone give a better definition than that? 
No, that makes a lot of sense. I was just going to say, in contradistinction to the Sorkin years, where this would never have been possible, (laughs) under John Wells, you know, they would, I guess, have banked scripts ahead of time or have a sense of where they were going so that scenes could be shot that weren't in the next episode. You know, it takes a a certain amount of planning. And then, of course, it also is a money saver when you can, you know that you're going to shoot scenes over the course of several episodes in one location rather than keep having to book that location going back and forth week after week or whatever it is you can actually plan ahead. The locations don't correspond to what we're actually seeing in the story, but you did have to go travel together to shoot some of these things. And one of the things that I love watching this episode is the sense of how this kind of travel um, ends up bonding the different aides together. Next is the nation's oldest Dairy Queen, where you try soft serve and talk about jobs in the economy. Next we fly to Iowa. Sort of, with wings. I impale myself on the mighty sort of corn-based fuel speech. I was wondering if you had a similar kind of experience going on the road instead of just sort of showing up on set and doing this as a day job when you actually have to travel, does it end up making you bond more tightly? I think so. I think one of the things that I was really kind of touched by, honestly, revisiting these episodes, because it's been a long time since I've seen them, is how much paralleling was happening. And I don't know if this resonates with you as well, Evan, but we were at the very beginning of this journey together on the campaign trail. You know, they were very modest humble beginnings. I think our infatuation with Santos, you could really see in both of us that we were just taken with him and honored to be part of this journey and kind of this really palpable level of disbelief. Like we just couldn't believe that we were doing this, that there was even any kind of hope that he could be president. And I felt very much as an actor, the same kind of sensation, like, oh my gosh, I'm on the West Wing. This is, I think I was filled with so much disbelief and just, you know, kind of a wide-eyed optimism. Optimism, and I felt like it was really blurry, the lines between Rana and myself as an actress, Karis, just being completely in awe of getting to be on this journey. I had so much fun. As soon as you go on location, for me, it feels like actor camp. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's just, it's another level exactly. of an adventure. Yeah, our characters' missions were aligned. We both are loyal to Santos. We both love him, respect him. We work in concert with each other. But I thought as people and as characters, we got along swimmingly. And it was just, it was so much fun. And the second you're traveling to Toronto, you're like, oh my gosh, extra adventure. Oh, yeah. hi, hi, Sam Robarts. Oh, yeah. hi, uh, Josh and Janelle. Oh, hi, Bradley. You know, look, look at this. Hey, there's snow. This is something different for everybody. It's kind of, absolutely. it was so much fun. How about Jimmy? What was Jimmy like to work with? Oh, I just want to say one thing quickly about Jimmy. He is one of those actors who is so giving. He looks towards you in the scene. He gestures towards you in the scene. How can I include the other actor? How can I give a moment or share a moment with the other actor? No one was neurotic or obnoxious on this set. Everybody was so highly competent that nobody had to be weird. And I had the best time ever. But one of the first thoughts I had about Jimmy was he's got a lot on his shoulders, you know, a lot of focus, a lot of words, and he's still taking the time to be giving to another actor and thinking about another actor. I felt that for me. And so 
I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah, I totally concur. He is such an inclusive and just warm human being. And I think, echoing what Evan said, I think it was a huge undertaking for him. And I think even in his own quiet way, he sort of was questioning, you know, why he was there and being able to kind of play with these other actors who were so well established and so confident in the roles that they embodied on the show. And it's such as it was such a specific show as far as pacing and language and everything else. So I think it was really humbling for him, but he was just such a delight. And and Evan's absolutely right. He was always so inclusive on and off camera. And, you know, you could tell valued everybody. Yeah, that's high praise indeed. That's one of the nicest things I think you can say about an actor, actually, is that they're looking to connect and to make moments and to, you know, share the focus. And it's important, you guys help like create the whole world around the candidate and it has to be kind of filled with life. And I think you guys did a very good job of that. There's just the hubbub of a campaign that surrounds him and a lot of it is in between the lines of dialogue and around it. Thank you so much. I mean, yeah, yeah. Brad's passion and Jimmy's depth and pathos made it easy for us to just look at him going like, Yep, this is our guy. He's yeah. everybody's guy. Absolutely. And I think we were there to protect it as well. Josh is struggling to try to understand this guy. He believes in him, that the depth of his commitment to him is evident, but he's trying to figure him out. Like this guy isn't anything, it's not familiar to him at all. And I think our jobs were to also help to kind of explain that, bring them into the fold, bridge the gap between these two men. Yeah, it's interesting. In this episode, one of the things I wrote down in my notes as I watched is that there still seems evident here kind of a massive misread on Josh's part of who he's dealing with, even though we've seen him kind of fall for the guy and jump in, like on the entire ethanol issue where he's just drafted an entire speech that is counter to the guy's take on the issue and then just really pressures him hard to just read it off the teleprompter. It's, uh, it's like it's still like classic Josh Lyman hubris still at play. Absolutely, yeah. I felt at times I was being a little negative Ned as I looked towards <laughs> Josh. We did call you that, didn't we? <laughs> I think we because called you that. I like being called Elmer Fudd Jr. the best, or Ted. I, I liked a couple of other moments later on. But yeah, because I was protective, I was wary. And I, yeah. you know, this guy, is he bending our guy? Is he going to break our guy? You know, who's the new guy? In the process of working on developing these characters, did you end up finding a new kind of connection to real world political figures? Yeah, I mean, I'm completely deluded. I'm actually quite convinced that I worked in politics, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which my husband always has a nice, you know, he chuckles about. But I feel like every time there's a new campaign season, I really genuinely feel like I was in the trenches. And I think working with people that had been embedded in Washington and had such intimate relationships with real campaigns, they brought such authenticity to the world that, I mean, it was a civics lesson. But I did have uh, somebody come up to me once who worked in government and it was so sweet. They were very effusive and just how much they adored the show. And they said, you know, there is one thing that we feel like doesn't quite ring true about the West Wing because we work in government. We actually live in Washington, D.C. and work in government. And and nobody in government actually works that fast. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really there you go. <laughs> Maybe if we gave them all only 44 minutes to exactly. finish. That's uh, what it is. They need parameters. <laughs> complete the arc. Can I just say a favorite moment for me from that episode, besides watching every graceful moment of Karis's brilliant acting, was actually watching Alan Alda. Uh, when we were in um, the forum or wherever we held that, yeah. we had an ethanol pledge 
triple moment between the candidates. There was a moment, I believe, where Alex said, could you just speak? You know, we're just trying to get the light flares right or camera angle right. And he just extemporized what seemed like a legitimate political speech that went on for, in my mind, 12 to 15 minutes straight. It could not have been that long, but he just went. No kidding. And he wasn't yapping. It was, it all flowed and, and made sense. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time to talk to us. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. No, it was such a pleasure. Such a thrill to get to revisit the series and get to be on with you guys. And and I've been thoroughly enjoying the podcast, too. So I will definitely continue to listen. Awesome. Thank you. This has been a, an incredible honor, an incredible honor to work on the series. And it's so <laughs> wonderful that you uh, called us up together to recount some memories. Oh, can I just say one other thing about Please do. Karis and me? When uh, you were talking about our bonding and our connection, and I think for me, you know, I will always feel this strong connection with Karis. And, I, you know, I'm a staffer also with Ramon, Diana Maria Riva, Matt yeah. Negro. The horrible, horrible situation of John Spencer passing away. Oh, my gosh. And we yeah. were all invited to the memorial on the Warner's lot, and Kristen sang For Good, and Bradley spoke, and... I just remember, you know, okay, I'm walking in. Oh, I'm obviously going to sit in the row, you know, near Karis. We're this element. We're this unit together as characters and people. And so that's just a, a way I wanted to articulate the fact that, yes, I just feel like we're uh, we're linked. We haven't seen each other much over the uh, intervening years, but it's one of those things where we talk again right now or we see each other and... You pick, pick up, up like where you left off. off. Yeah, absolutely. That's the actor's way. I agree. Those bonds have, have certainly lasted, even if we don't see each other on a regular basis. Right on. Well, thanks for giving us the opportunity to bring you two back together for this conversation. Yeah. It's great. Great to talk to you guys. That was fantastic. Thank you. Huge pleasure. Thank you so much. And that does it for this episode. It does indeed. We've done it again. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Evan Arnold and Karis Campbell for joining us. And thanks also to Lauren Hisrick. And thanks to Politico senior writer Michael Grunwald for talking to me about his article. You can find a link to that on our website. Thanks to Zach McNeese, Margaret Miller, and Nick Song for keeping us joined together. Go to the West Wing Weekly for all the links that we talked about, lots of additional reading and materials, and you can leave comments and get into fights with people if you want. That's right. If, by the way, um, thewestwingweekly.com is too spicy of a forum, you can always talk about the episodes on our Facebook page, where you might have a little bit more control over what you see. You can always block people or hide comments that you don't like. There's also a West Wing Weekly discussion group that is moderated. If you want to buy some of our merchandise... Or even better, give us money for nothing. You can go to clogvlogs.com and hit the merchandise or donate <laughs> buttons. The West Wing Weekly is a proud member of Radiotopia, which is a collection of great podcasts. <laughs> That's all I've got. Go to radiotopia.fm to learn more about all of the shows. You can follow our guests online, too. You can follow Karis Campbell on Instagram at Karis underscore Campbell. Michael Grunwald is on Twitter, at Mike Grunwald. And Lauren Schmidt-Hisrick is at L. Hisrick on Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter. You can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook. But don't follow us on the street. That's creepy. Okay. Okay. What's next?
I'm excited to tell you about a brand new show from Radiotopia called The Recipe. It's hosted by J. Kenji Lopez-Alt and Deb Perlman. You might know Kenji from Serious Eats and all his incredible food wisdom. He's also the author of the cookbooks The Food Lab and The Walk, both of which are New York Times bestsellers. Deb is the creator of the extremely popular recipe website, Smitten Kitchen. She's a self-taught home cook and cookbook author. And on this new show, Deb and Kenji will do a deep dive into the techniques and ingredients behind some of the most popular go-to dishes. Look for the recipe wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes start February 26th. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.